Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 29. Tomorrow is a very special day for me. Exactly why is not that important, so let's listen to some of my favourite stories. First up, we have a great tale called Steam Girl by Dylan Horrocks. Dylan is a cartoonist, writer and illustrator who lives in Auckland, New Zealand. He's the author of the graphic novels Hicksville, Incomplete Works and Sam Zabel and the Magic Pen, as well as the comic book series Pickle and Atlas. He has written comics for DC and Vertigo, including Batgirl and Hunter, The Age of Magic. His website is at hicksvillecomics.com. It's read for you by our Triple F virtuoso, Pete Nixon. Pete is a full-time programmer and full-time student. He's the editor and producer for Green Eggs and Horror, a Dr. Zeus-inspired short story anthology. He narrates and writes in his spare time because he doesn't believe in normal hobbies. So, here is Steam Girl by Dylan Horrocks. <laughs> The first time I see her, she's standing alone behind the library, looking at the ground. Faded blue dress, scruffy leather jacket, long lace-up boots and black-rimmed glasses. But what really makes me stop and stare is the hat, a weird old leather thing that hangs down over her ears, with big, thick goggles strapped to the front. Turns out, she's in my English class. She sits right next to me, still wearing the jacket and goggles and hat. She smells like a thrift store. Weirdo, says Michael Carmichael. Freak, says Amanda Anderson. She ignores the laughter, reaching into her bag for a notebook and pencil. She bends so low that no one can see what she's writing. Later, when Mrs. Hendricks is dealing with an outbreak of giggles at the front of the class, I lean over and whisper, What's with the hat? 
She glances at me with a tiny frown, then turns back to her notebook. Her eyebrows are the color of cheese. Not a hat, she says without looking up. Helmet. Flying helmet. Huh, I say. So what are you, a pilot? Then she raises her eyes and smiles straight at me, kind of sly. Steam girl, she says. What's steam girl? Then Mrs. Hendricks starts shouting, and the whole class shuts up. That afternoon, she's waiting for me by the school gate. I check that no one's watching before I say hello. Here, she says, handing me the notebook. It's a cheap old school exercise book, with a creased cover and fraying corners. On the first page is a title, in big blue letters, Steam Girl. Below that is a drawing of a slimmer, prettier version of the girl in front of me. Blue dress, leather jacket, lace-up boots, flying helmet and goggles. But in the drawing it looks awesome, instead of, well, weird. Did you do this? I say. It's pretty good. Thanks. She reaches over and turns the pages. There are more drawings and diagrams. A flying ship shaped like a cigar. People in old-fashioned diving suits swimming through space. Strange alien landscapes. Strange clockwork gadgets and, of course, Steam Girl, leaping from the airship, fighting off monsters, laughing and smiling. So, who's Steam Girl? I ask. She's an adventurer, she says. Well, her father's an adventurer. And an explorer and scientist. But she goes everywhere with him in their experimental steam-powered airship, the Martian Rose. Steam Girl makes gadgets. She rummages around in her bag, finally holding up what looks like a rusty old Swiss army knife. Screwdrivers and pliers and mangled bits of wire stick out in all directions. There's even a tiny wooden teaspoon. The Mark II Multifunctional Pocket Engineering Device, she announces triumphantly. One of Steam Girl's first and best gadgets. Got them out of many a scrape like the time they were captured by troglodytes on the moon and locked in an underground zoo. She's talking pretty fast and waving her arms in the air, and I take a step back to avoid getting stabbed by that thing in her hand. Steam Girl used this to pick the lock on their cage, and they managed to get back to the Martian Rose just in time. She continues, half closing her eyes. As they lifted into space, the troglodytes in their tunnels howled so loud that the ground shivered and shook and the moon dust rippled like windswept waves. Um, I don't know what to say. So, you, uh, you made all this up, huh? She goes very quiet. Then she grabs the notebook out of my hands and shoves it into her bag. See ya, she says, and runs off before I can reply. I've never been what you'd call a popular kid. I'm not very smart. I'm lousy at sports, and between the oversized teeth and the woolly black hair, I'm kind of goofy-looking. My mom always says I have hidden talents, but I gave up looking for them a long time ago. I'm used to being on my own. I have had friends. In fact, once upon a time I used to hang out with Amanda Anderson, the prettiest girl in school. We live on the same street, and when I was six or seven her mother used to visit my mum for coffee. Amanda and I would play together with Legos and dolls and stuff like that. My parents didn't approve of gender stereotypes, so sometimes they'd buy me girls' toys. I had a pretty cool doll's house, and some Barbie accessories that Amanda adored. It was all the same to me. I'd play with anything. But one day at school, Amanda told everyone about my Barbie dolls. You can imagine the mocking I got after that. When I told my parents what happened, 
They called Amanda's mother on the phone, and they never came for coffee again. I'm glad my parents stood up for me, but I kind of wish they hadn't made a scene. I mean, it's not like Amanda and I were best friends or anything. We hardly said a word to each other at school. But she was really pretty, even back then, and I guess I hoped that one day, maybe... Well, you get the idea. What's really sad and pathetic is that I still have hopes after all these years. You know, like in the movies, when the hot popular girl suddenly falls totally in love with the unpopular nerd and dumps the arrogant macho football jock. Only in the movies, the unpopular nerd is played by a good-looking film star, while in real life, he's played by me. These days, Amanda goes out with Michael Carmichael, who hit puberty three years before I did and plays bass in a hardcore band and who once put a lit cigarette down my trousers on the way home from school. It took nearly five minutes to get the damn thing out. I ended up with blisters in places you don't want to know about. I don't really get why Michael's such an asshole. It's like he feels personally offended when someone is ugly or stupid or clever or different. Like it makes him really angry. I almost feel sorry for him being like that. But then he pushes past me in the hallway with Amanda Anderson on his arm. And I don't feel sorry anymore. Anyway, as I was saying, I don't really have any friends. Most of the time that's okay. At home I play a lot of online games by myself. I know a lot of people treat those games as a big social thing with loads of chatting and friending and all that, but not me. I just go on quests and kill monsters and level up and earn gold and stuff. That's what I like about it. Even a loser like me can actually achieve something. Just by pushing keys and putting in the hours. I wish real life were more like that. Now and then, the loneliness is more than I can bear, so I try things like smiling at people in class. Sometimes they smile back, and sometimes they look like they want to punch me or else throw up, and then I feel worse than ever. Once, I smiled at Amanda, and she smiled back. Then, after class, Michael pushed me up against the wall and told me to stop creeping out his girlfriend. So, when the new girl ambushed me at the gate, I didn't know what to think. Is she stalking me? I've never had a stalker before, obviously, but I sometimes wish I did. But in the fantasies, my stalker would be gorgeous, blonde, and crazy with lust. Not just, you know, crazy. Still, I have to admit, that notebook is pretty damn cool. That night, as I'm lying in bed, my mind keeps drifting back to the shivering moon dust, the Martian rose, and of course, Steam Girl, who, come to think of it, is gorgeous and blonde. So, in the morning, when I see that leather flying helmet bobbing along in a sluggish tide of hoodies and greasy hair, I find myself pushing through the crowd to catch up. Hey, I say, as casually as I can. She barely looks up. Hey. How come I didn't see you before last week? Did you move here or something? Instead of answering, she takes hold of my arm and steers me out of the flow and into an empty alcove. I'm too surprised to speak. Listen she says, still holding my arm. Do you want to meet me at lunchtime? Uh, sure, I, I guess. I'm not at all sure I want to, but what else can I say? By the incinerator. Quarter past twelve. She makes it sound like a mysterious secret rendezvous, and then she lets go of my arm and disappears back into the crowd. Where Steam Girl comes from, even the laws of physics are different. There's a little magic in technology. Things are less drab, less logical, less straightforward. Everything's a little more... possible. 
were sitting on a wall behind the incinerator block. The air smells of smoke and garbage, but there's no one else around, which is a big advantage. I'm flicking through her notebook, drinking in the drawings of Steam Girl's long legs and sly smile. Take the Martian Rose, she says. It's the greatest airship ever made, with an amazing motor called the Spirodynamic Multidimensional Concentrated Steam Engine. I'm not sure exactly how it works. Something about cycling steam through several dimensions at once to magnify its power. It was invented by Steam Girl's mother, who mysteriously disappeared when Steam Girl was still a baby. She was an inventor, too. What's this? I say, holding up the notebook. Oh, that's Mars, she says. The picture shows a fairy tale palace, perched on the side of a huge red mountain. In the foreground are several men in armor, each riding the back of a strange giant bird. Skimmerbirds, she explains. They're not really birds. They're more like flying dinosaurs, but covered in shiny green and yellow scales that almost look like feathers. When the sun hits them, they shimmer and flash like a thousand colored lights. It's beautiful. I glance up at her. She's slowly swinging her legs and staring into the distance at nothing. There's something very serious about the way she speaks. The next drawing seems to be inside the palace. A tall, slim man with a long white beard sitting on a throne. When we first arrived, she says, we were taken to see King Minimatic. The Martians were really nervous, because they'd never seen people from Earth before. Who's that? I ask, pointing at a dark-haired young woman standing beside the king. Oh, that's Princess Luzanna, the king's daughter. As soon as she saw Steam Girl's father, Luzanna started blushing like the sunrise. Apparently that's what Martian women do when they fall in love. She glances at me for a moment, then looks down at her boots and continues talking. At first the king didn't know what to do with these strangers from another world, so he summoned the royal oracle, who turned up in a long black cloak, a dark hood covering her face. But when she entered the room, the oracle gave a strangled cry and fell to the floor in a faint. All the guards pointed their spears at Steam Girl and her father, and even the king drew his sword. Things looked pretty grim. She slides off the wall and starts pacing up and down, stretching her arms over her head. That's when Princess Luzanna intervened, pleading with her father to give the visitors a chance. The king hesitated. The earthlings claimed to have come in peace. What's more, it was clear that his beloved daughter had taken a powerful liking to one of them at least. But the fate of his kingdom, maybe the entire planet, could be at stake. By now I've forgotten all about the notebook, the incinerator smell, the stale sandwiches and warm juice at my side. I'm completely caught by her words, the sound of her voice. I watch as she strides back and forth across the dirty asphalt, lost in her story. Then Steam Girl had an idea. She curtsied to the king. As she says this, she drops into a clumsy curtsy herself, and said she had a gift for him and his lovely daughter. Her pacing has brought her to the side of her school bag. She crouches and draws out a small metal object, cupped in both hands, a tiny artificial bird, made of metal and wood, held together by miniature hinges and levers. Wow, I say. The clockwork sparrow, she says. Just a little trifle Steam Girl had made during the long journey from the moon to Mars. Now she held it up for the king to see, and she wound the spring-driven motor like this. I hold my breath as she turns a key no bigger than a baby's fingernail. There's the sound of small, metallic teeth catching and grinding. And then she opened her hands and let go. The clockwork sparrow drops like a stone, hitting the ground with a painful clatter. We both stare at it in silence. Then, just for a moment, it comes to life. Rusting wings flutter, 
the tiny beak opens and closes, and the whole bird shuffles sideways along the asphalt. And then it lies still. Well, it worked better on Mars, she says, lifting the broken metal body and turning away. That was awesome, I say, jumping down from the wall. Where did you get it? Can I see? But she's already put it away. Never mind, she says, pulling her bag over her shoulder. The bell's about to ring. You can't stop there, I say. What happened with the king? And what's her name? Lucy? I follow her all the way to E-Block, but she won't say another word. And sure enough, the bell rings just as we reach the door, and I have to go to gym class. After that, I'm hooked. We meet up most days for lunch by the incinerator. She tells me about Steam Girl while I look at the pictures in her book. Sometimes she turns up without any lunch, so I share mine. Soon I'm bringing twice as much, just in case. And an extra bottle of orange juice, which she really likes. The stories get longer and more complicated. Voyages of discovery all over Mars, with monsters and volcanoes and narrow escapes from angry native tribes. But throughout it all, their friendship with King Minimatic and Princess Luzanna grows. Sometimes, the old king and his daughter would come with them on the Martian Rose, delighted at the chance to explore their home planet. And, of course, Luzanna still glowed bright red whenever Steam Girl's father was around. Not everyone on Mars liked the newcomers. The king's son, Prince Xenobal, seemed to resent their popularity, especially after Steam Girl rejected his amorous advances with a well-placed right hook, and the royal oracle hid in her laboratory when they were in town but everyone else was having too much fun to notice. And then there are the gadgets, the motion-powered, wrist-mounted, monodirectional lantern, a tiny metal box that faintly glows if you jump up and down for long enough, the audioscopic motion capture device, a tin cup full of wood chips and wax that supposedly records sound, the portable kitchen, actually a beat-up old gas cooker covered in rubber tubes, and my favorite, Steam Girl's spring-motivated vertical propulsion boots. These last ones turn up in a story involving giant, blood-sucking insects who live in a deep canyon called the Mariner's Valley. Steam Girl was trapped at the bottom of a pit, listening to the buzz of the thirsty insect swarm getting closer and closer. But then, at the last moment, she reached down to flick a tiny lever on her lace-up boots and... And what? I say, as she slips into one of her long, teasing pauses, gazing up at the sky. We're sitting, as usual, on the low concrete wall behind the incinerator. Come on! A lazy smile spreads across her face, and she slowly slips down from the wall. There are a couple of tiny metal clips on the soles of her boots. She spends a moment fiddling with these, then straightens up and grins. A little modification Steam Girl made to her boots back on the moon, she says. Very useful on low-gravity planets like Mars. She bends her knees and jumps. At first, I think the soles of her boots have come right off but then I realize they're still attached by thick, round springs that stretch and bounce as she leaps into the air. I laugh pretty hard at that, and even harder when she lands flat on her bum. She glares at me, brushing off her skirt. Like I said, they work better in low gravity. We spend a half hour mucking around with the crazy spring boots. She even gets me to try them on, though they don't really fit, and I fall over straight away. I scrape my knees and get a bruise on my chin, but I'm laughing too much to care. It's the first time I hear her laugh, and I like it. She kind of giggles, but not a high-pitched girly giggle like Amanda and her friends. It sounds almost dirty. Anyway, in the story, Steam Girl's boots got her out of the pit to safety, and in a way I guess they've helped me escape from the dreariness of school. At least for an hour or so. 
while it's just me and her and the gadgets and the notebook. But then the bell rings and we have to go back to class and real life. And let's face it, real life sucks. It doesn't take long for people to notice I've made a new friend. How's your girlfriend? they say. She's not my girlfriend, I reply, again and again, for all the good it does. Michael Carmichael seems to find everything about her personally insulting, and he apparently blames me. You're disgusting, he says, shoving me into walls and chairs and shelves and desks. Makes me sick. Even Amanda makes gagging faces when she sees us together, and once in the hallway after English she grabs at Steam Girl's flying helmet and tries to pull it off. I don't see what happens next, but everyone hears Amanda screaming like a scalded cat. I ask about it over lunch, but all I get is a chilly glare and silence. From the noise Amanda made, I thought you'd ripped her face off, I say. She rolls her eyes. She's worse than the shrieking vines of Venus. The shrieking what? And then she gives me a little smile and starts to talk. And before long, I've totally forgotten about Amanda and Michael and everything else. But the next day, I don't see her in the morning. Even though I get to school early and wait by the gate till the bell rings. She isn't in class either. At lunchtime, I check by the incinerator. There's no one there. So I give up and go sit in the library where it's peaceful and private. That's where I find her, sitting on the floor between two shelves, sniffing like a little girl. You okay? I say. She's covering the left side of her face with one hand. I kneel down beside her but don't know what to say. So instead I just sit there saying nothing while she sniffs and gulps and keeps hiding her face until finally the bell rings and we get to our feet and go to our separate classes without a word. So, anyway, here's what she tells me about the shrieking vines of Venus, the day before Michael Carmichael gave her a black eye. When Steam Girl and her father had been on Mars for a few months and had already ticked off most of the items on King Minimatic's Places to See list, someone had the bright idea of going to Venus. Actually, it was Prince Zenobal's idea, which should have tipped them off straight away. But everyone was too excited to be suspicious. Steam Girl's father had always wanted to see what the mysterious green planet was like, and the king couldn't wait to travel to another world. The preparations were made at lightning speed, and within a week the Martian Rose was on its way to Venus, with Steam Girl and her father and a handful of passengers, including the king and the princess. Zenobal had pulled out at the last minute, much to Steam Girl's relief. Venus was beautiful, she says, eyes shining, like the greenest, thickest, most luscious jungle you can imagine. The forest rose hundreds of feet into the thick, warm air, and there were flowers everywhere, huge orange blossoms the size of a house, with pools of sweet nectar where you could swim and drink at the same time. Millions of birds and tiny playful monkeys who chattered and giggled and danced through the trees. It was paradise. For six days they flew over the vast green ocean of leaves, landing now and then to explore under the canopy. All their worries fell away, and they felt more relaxed and happy than ever before. They strolled through endless orchards, munching on all kinds of fruit, swam in fresh clean rivers, and lay in giant palm fronds, watching as sunset turned the whole sky red. Everything seemed peaceful. There were no giant monsters or angry natives or dangerous traps. The only slight annoyance was a particular kind of vine that gave off an ear-splitting shriek whenever you came near it. Aha! The shrieking vines of Venus, she grins. Luckily, they were covered with bright pink blossoms that gave off a sickly sweet scent, so they were easy enough to avoid. There are drawings, too, in her notebook. My favorite shows Steam Girl and the princess doubled over with laughter, pointing at a puzzled King Minimatic. 
A bright red monkey the size of a kitten has made a nest in the king's beard and is curled up fast asleep. Behind them the jungle is a dense tumble of leaves and flowers and vines. Tiny bluebirds fly overhead. Over the page is a very different scene, a view from the airship with the jungle spread out below. A dark column of smoke rises into the sky from somewhere near the horizon. It's a disturbing picture. When I ask about it, she stops smiling and goes quiet. I've never seen her look like that. Sorry, she says at last. I was... she trails off. You see, this is where it all went wrong. How do you mean? I ask. She shakes her head. Never mind, she says. I'll tell you tomorrow. But the next day is when I found her crying in the library, and after that, things begin to change. Around this time, Mrs. Hendricks shifts the seats around, so Amanda and Michael aren't sitting together. Instead, Michael ends up next to me, and Amanda gets to sit with Steam Girl. Maybe Mrs. Hendricks thinks I'll be a good influence on Michael, which just shows how much she knows. Day after day I stare at them, the two girls I mean. Amanda wears tight tops that show a lot of skin. Her spine is one long, graceful curve, and when she leans back and yawns, it's like a slow-motion movie. She knows Michael is watching, so sometimes she puts on a show with plenty of stretching and hair-tossing and brief stolen glances. Of course, I get to see it all, too. Next to them, Steam Girl's flying helmet and jacket seem even sadder than usual. She hunches over her notebook like a big, shy bear trying to hide. The only skin that shows through all the dark-worn leather is an occasional glimpse of the back of her neck. It looks pale and cold. Some nights, when I lie in bed, I try to remember Amanda's latest performance, her soft, slim arms, her narrow waist. But after a while, all I can think of is a tiny sliver of cool, white skin. It's a whole week before she mentions Steam Girl again. I get to the incinerator first that day. There's a fire going, and thick white smoke keeps drifting into my eyes. Even the concrete seems to be sweating. When she finally shows up, I didn't notice till she's right in front of me. It's like she comes out of the smoke. Like she is smoke. For a moment, nothing seems solid. Nothing's real. Then she reaches out and puts a hand on my arm. Are you all right? She says. Uh, yeah. I shake my head. Let's get out of here. We sit under some dying trees by a chain-link fence. Scraps of rubbish have blown among the roots and the earth feels damp. I spread my sweatshirt out for her to sit on so she won't get wet. For a moment she hesitates, looking at the sweatshirt and then at me. No one's ever looked at me like that before. Her eyes wide open and her lips not quite closed. Her neck is slowly turning pink. Thank you, she says and smiles. We share my lunch as usual. I have some chocolate cake from Dad's birthday and she carefully eats half before handing me the rest. Then she leans back on the tree while I flick through her notebook. When I reach the picture from Venus with the green jungle and the black smoke, I hold it up. So, I say, you were going to tell me about this one? She swallows, then nods. Okay, she says. I guess you've waited long enough. The rising smoke came from a chimney, from dozens of tall, fat chimneys that loomed over a vast line of buildings, like giant factories and warehouses, made of stone and concrete and iron and tin. There was a gaping hole in the forest where the trees had been cut and the ground opened up. Huge machines were tearing at the earth pulling up tons of soil and rock and carrying it into factories. Stacks of tree trunks were piled outside, for fuel, Steam Girl supposed. There were no people to be seen, 
only thousands of strange gray robots shaped like men, who bustled about among the buildings and machines like a hive of worker bees. When they first saw all this, Princess Luzanna began to cry. Her father's face went dark. Take us down, he rumbled. I would find out who has done this thing. Stingirl and her father, along with the king and three of his bravest warriors, landed in the forest about a mile away. They crept to the edge of the clearing and watched as several robots marched stiffly by. The robots carried guns of a kind Stingirl had never seen before. Stingirl hated guns more than anything, and she never, ever used them. As soon as the robots had gone past, Stingirl whispered to her father, Back in a minute. And before he could argue, she left their hiding place and ran across the open ground to the nearest building where she crouched behind a low wall of crates and then slipped in through the door. It was a factory, all right. There were machines and conveyor belts and cables and tubes. There were workers, too, hundreds of robots pulling levers and turning cranks and carrying wood to the giant furnace at one end of the room. She noticed more robots lying half-assembled on the conveyor belts and guessed that's what the factory was for. Robots building more robots. But that was only part of it. There were other production lines, too making machines she'd never seen or even heard of. Heavy iron engines that smelled of fire and oil, some with wings and some with wheels, ugly big guns and bombs with fins like sharks. There were boxes and tools made of a strange artificial material, unnaturally smooth, light, and dull, and flat glass screens like empty mirrors and long, snaking, rubber-coated wires that hung around the room and over the floor. Steamgirl's head was spinning, but she was determined to solve the mystery of this infernal factory. As quietly as she could, she made her way across the factory floor, ducking from woodpile to conveyor belt, avoiding the robots and looking for clues. Near the middle of the room was a raised platform with a commanding view of the whole operation. There was no one there, just a desk and two chairs, a vase of bright pink flowers, and one of those curious machines with row upon row of buttons and a blank glass screen. And all over the desk, the chairs, the floor, stood piles of paper, covered with printed text and diagrams and handwritten notes. Quickly and carefully, Steamgirl crept to the edge of the platform and glanced around to see if she had been noticed. Then, she reached up to the desk and snatched an armload of paper. A high-pitched scream filled the air, cutting through the constant roar of the factory. Robots looked up from their work and stared at the platform where Steamgirl crouched, clutching her stolen papers. Shrieking vines, she muttered, realizing too late that the vase on the desk wasn't merely decorative. Then she jumped to her feet and ran as fast as she could, leaping over conveyor belts and darting between the quickly converging robots until finally she was out the door and sprinting for the cover of the jungle. Behind her, shots rang out, louder and faster than any firearm she knew of. The ground around her feet spat up fistfuls of dirt, but somehow she made it to the trees unharmed. Run, she yelled and her father and the Martians took off through the forest with bullets splintering trees and cutting leaves to ribbons all around them. But Steamgirl paused a moment to catch her breath, then reached down to her belt and pulled out a gadget she'd never tried before. Ha! I know what's coming next, I cry, interrupting her story. Do you? she says, looking at me sideways from behind her glasses. Sure, I grin, slipping off the wall and crossing my arms. It's gadget time. So what is it today? A steam-driven instantaneous escape facilitator? Oversized extendable robot neutralizing punching arms? A rocket-powered jetpack flying machine? She stares at me for a moment and then laughs so hard she gets the hiccups. I can't stop smiling. 
especially when she wipes her eyes and puts her hand on my shoulder. You're okay, she says. I think we'll get along just fine. I can feel my face blushing, but she's already turned away to dig through her bag. When she straightens up, she's holding what looks like a rusty tin can with a string at one end. Huh? I say. Is that it? Doesn't look like much. Then she points one end of the can at me and pulls the string. There's a loud cough, and the air fills with steam and something damp and heavy hits me full in the face. I yelp and trip over backward, and then it's like someone's tossed a wet fishing net all over me. I wave my arms and legs around and just get more and more caught. I can hear her laughing again, even harder than before, but it doesn't seem very funny to me. Get me out of here, I shout at the top of my lungs. God damn it! It's horrible! She eventually manages to stop laughing long enough to try to free me, but without much success. The net's so sticky, it gets all over her too, and soon we're both caught in a big gooey mess of strings and glue and soot and each other. There's a moment when I suddenly realize I'm lying on top of her, my face pressed against her neck. She has one arm around my back and a hand on my cheek. And at exactly the same time we both stop struggling and lie there in silence. Her soft white skin is slowly turning pink. At last we get ourselves out, and as we sit on the dusty concrete, picking bits of sticky web out of our hair and off our clothes, she tells me the rest of the story. The web-weaving tangle trap caught the first wave of pursuing robots, she says, giving Steam Girl and her friends enough time to get back to the airship in safety. They rose up into the sky with gunfire rattling at them from below. The king was elated. What an adventure, he said with a laugh. Princess Luzanna was so excited, she quite forgot herself, throwing her arms around Steam Girl's father and giving him a big kiss. The king laughed even harder at that, until the princess turned the brightest red anyone had ever seen and ran off to her cabin. I closed my eyes then, picturing the scene. If I'd been there, I'd have kissed Seam Girl. She'd have laughed with a low, throaty giggle. Perhaps her breath would quicken and her throat would turn pink, and I'd have to swallow very hard before I could speak. But when I open my eyes again, she isn't smiling or blushing. She isn't even looking at me. But at the thin, brown grass that's forced its way through the asphalt. And what about Steam Girl? I ask. What did she do? She glances up and our eyes meet. She looks so sad. She, well, after all that running, I guess she was tired, she sighs. So she went to take a rest in her hammock. But as she took off her jacket, something fell out of the pocket and spilled across the floor. The papers she'd snatched. What with getting shot at and everything, she'd completely forgotten about them till now. So she leaped up and spread the papers out across the floor. To her surprise, they were in English. There were maps of Venus, Mars, and Earth, lists of equipment, and plans of attack. With a rising sense of panic, Steam Girl realized they could only mean one thing. All those robots and weapons and fighting machines were being prepared as an army of conquest. Reading on, she found ominous references to some kind of super bomb, able to destroy whole cities in a single awful flash, poisonous gas that could kill an army in minutes and even man-made plagues for releasing into a population's water supply or the air they breathed. It was unimaginable. Inhuman. Horrible. It was a plan for the end of the world. On the way back to class, she's quiet. But I'm buzzy. So what happened? I say, dancing around her as we walk. Did Steam Girl show the papers to her father? And then did they... No, she says quietly. What? 
She didn't show him the papers? How come? She hesitates a moment, as if trying to decide whether to tell me what comes next. There was one more thing, she says at last. On one of the papers, on the back, written in pencil over and over. I wait, but she seems to have stopped talking, and we're almost at her classroom. What was it? I stand in front of the door. Come on, you have to tell me, or I won't let you go to maths. She gives me a withering look. All right, I'll tell you, but... But what? I'm desperate. The second bell is about to ring. Never mind, she says. It was a name. Her father's name. His full name. Professor Archibald James Patterson Swift, again and again. Whoa, I breathe. So, what? Was he behind the factory? Did he have, like, a secret life where he slipped off to Venus and planned the destruction of Earth? Don't be stupid, she hisses. It would be a good twist, though, wouldn't it? I say. You know, the heroine's father turns out to be the villain? It wasn't him, she repeats, more firmly this time. He's a good man who'd never do anything rotten like that, no matter what people say about him. Why? What do people say about him? Now I'm confused. Does the father have secrets after all? But the second bell rings and she pushes past me into the classroom and closes the door behind her. She isn't at school the next day, or the day after that. I look for her everywhere, but she isn't in class, or by the incinerator, or even in the library. By Thursday I've slipped back into my old routine, eating lunch by myself and catching up on homework. Mrs. Hendricks has given us a new assignment. Write a short story in the first person, present tense. I sit in the classroom trying to ignore Michael Carmichael and come up with an idea, but all I can think of is Steam Girl, and that's her story, not mine. So I start writing about a boy who has his own adventures, traveling around the universe in a rocket ship called the Silver Arrow. In my story, he flies to Saturn, which is like a huge ocean of poisonous gases. So the natives all live in cities they've built on the rings high above the planet's surface. When Rocket Boy, that's what I call him, lands on the first ring, he sees this huge hairy monster chasing a frightened girl. So he makes a really loud noise with his rocket's engines and scares the monster away. The girl, who turns out to be the princess of Saturn, is so grateful she throws her arms around him and kisses him on the lips. Blushing pink on her cheeks and on her long, pale neck, her heaving breasts pressed against his chest. But then I stop, because I know what Mrs. Hendricks would say. She hates it if we write something like heaving breasts. She calls it a cliché and says we should write about things that are real, which makes me want to say, I don't like writing what's real, because mostly what's real is boring and sucks. But I don't say that. I just nod and say nothing. Anyway, this time it is real, because that's what this girl is like. I know because I based her on Steam Girl, who definitely does have heaving breasts and long, lithe legs and all that stuff. Well, the Steam Girl on the notebook, at least. The real one has heaving breasts, too, come to think of it, but also heaving shoulders and a heaving stomach and heaving thighs and bum. She's all about the heaving. And the weird thing is, I don't mind at all. I'm even starting to like it. So when she finally reappears on Friday, I nervously show her Rocket Boy. I've even done some drawings of him and the princess, but they look pretty stupid compared to hers. I'm worried she'll say it's lousy, but instead she gives it back without saying much at all. Great, she says, sounding distracted. I don't think she's even read it. How come you weren't at school? I say, a little disappointed. But she doesn't answer my question. Did I miss much? I tell her about the short story assignment, which is due in a week. You should do Steam Girl, I say. She looks at me like I'm stupid. 
That's not for teachers, she says. What do you mean? I ask, but I already kind of know. All they want to read about is miserable people living stupid, boring lives, unhappy families, unrequited love, and all that crap. She grimaces. And the worst thing is, none of it's real. Sorry, I say. I didn't mean... It's just... Well, I think Steam Girl is great. Really, totally awesome. I swear, if you typed it all up and got it published, you could be a millionaire. She stares at me for a long time. I can feel my cheeks starting to burn. Listen, she says at last. I don't care about being a millionaire, or Mrs. Hendricks, or English grades, or school, or any of that stuff. All of that means nothing. Okay, I say. All I care about is this. She brandishes her notebook like a weapon. This is all that matters. All that's real. This time I don't say anything. She hesitates for a moment, her eyes slipping away from mine and drifting across the concrete and the garbage and the thin, sickly trees. Then she turns and walks away. That afternoon in biology, Amanda Anderson comes over and says hi. I almost choke. Um, hi, I say. You're pretty tight with the new girl, right? She says. That weird girl with the hat? Flying helmet, I say, and immediately regret it. What? She looks at me like I've just started speaking Mongolian. It's not a hat. I've lost all control of my mouth. It's a flying helmet, like pilots wear. Apparently, I trail off lamely. Well, whatever, she says. So what's her deal? Is she one of those creepy cosplayers or something? I, I don't know, I say, which is true. She's good at drawing, and she tells amazing stories. Huh, Amanda frowns. What kind of stories? Um, I'm not sure how much to explain. I mean, Amanda is the Shrieking Vine of Venus, right? She's already caused one black eye. What if she's just pumping me for intel to pass on to Michael? But I was friends with her once, and I want to believe she's a decent person. It's not her fault the whole Barbie thing got out of hand, or that her boyfriend is a creep. Maybe she's genuinely trying to understand. Maybe she wants to patch things up. Maybe I still have a chance. They're about this character called Steam Girl, I say at last. Steam Girl? She screws up her face. Yeah, she has adventures on Mars and stuff. God, how lame, Amanda says. I feel bad that in my mouth it does sound lame. It's like a betrayal. Does she ever take off that stupid hat? Amanda says. I don't know. I say. Not that I've seen. Well, anyway, she says, getting to the point at last. Tracy says she lives in a trailer home with her creepy drug dealer father. You should probably be careful. One day she'll probably bring a gun to school and kill everyone she knows. I laugh. I'm just telling you for your own safety. She actually seems concerned. I know you always look for the best in people, but you saw what she did to me, right? That girl is dangerous. Seriously. She puts a hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry Michael's such a jerk, she says. I swear I'm this close to ditching him. The warmth of her skin goes through my shirt and spreads across my body. Take care of yourself, she says. That night I try to dream about Amanda Anderson, but all I can think of is that stupid hat. And then it's the weekend, and I don't have to think about Steam Girl or Amanda Anderson or Michael Carmichael or anything. I stay in my bedroom, playing online games with loud music on the headphones. Once There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Or twice, mom comes in to try to get me outside or doing chores, but mostly I can just be alone. I can't get my head around anything. Steam Girl, the one in the notebook, is perfect. Beautiful, smart, generous, and brave. Her long legs and heaving breasts haunt me in a way even Amanda Anderson never has. But the other one, the real girl, who tells the stories and draws the pictures, well, her legs are short and kind of plump. Her skin is pasty and pale with freckles and spots. She's like a parody of Steam Girl, a fat, nerdy girl playing dress-ups. But here's the thing. I just can't stop thinking about her. When she smiles, I feel lighter than air. When she's sad, I want to take her hand and tell her everything will be okay. I don't, but I want to. I love seeing her neck go pink. In fact, I love everything about her neck. I keep imagining what it would be like to put my fingers on that soft white skin and feel the tiny muscles flutter as she speaks. Sometimes she closes her eyes as she talks about Steamgirl's father and the Martian Rose, and then her lips go soft and everything about her seems to glow. She makes life special, and I find myself by Saturday night wanting to see her more than I've ever wanted anything before. I pull on some shoes and a hoodie and go out into the darkening streets. There's no way of knowing where she is, of course. I have no idea where she lives or what she does on a Saturday. For all I know, she could be flying over the Martian desert in an airship or fighting robots somewhere in the jungles of Venus. So I just walk, randomly, through the empty suburban streets as the sky goes from red to purple to black, like the bruise around her eye. And the electric lights come on flickering over cracked pavements and filling windows with gold. Now and then a car rattles past, or some kid on a bike, but mostly I'm alone. It's after midnight when I get home. Dad lets me in without saying a word, makes me a hot chocolate and goes back to bed. It takes me hours to fall asleep. On Monday morning, I'm at school early, waiting by the gate, but when the second bell rings, I give up and go to class. At lunchtime, I go down to the incinerator and sit on the wall and try to eat my lunch. The concrete's cold, and the smell of smoke is stale and heavy in the air. My stomach is churning, 
After ten minutes, I pick up my bag and turn to go. She's walking toward me, hands in the pockets of her heavy old jacket. I open my mouth to say something, but nothing comes to mind. Hey, she says. I was looking for you, I say, and then stop, wondering why the hell I said that. She frowns, so I just keep talking, not knowing what will come out. On Saturday night, I walked everywhere, hoping you might... I mean, I didn't know where to find you. She's giving me that look, like when I put my sweatshirt on the ground. So, I say, pretty stupid, huh? She smiles. It was a bit stupid, she says, but it was also gallant. I don't know what that means, I say. She laughs. Okay, maybe just stupid. She hooks her arm around mine and pulls me over to the dying trees and the rusting fence. I give her my juice to drink, and she gives me an apple. Neither of us mentions Steam Girl. But the next day, she starts talking as soon as we meet up. I need to tell you what happened next, she says. When Steam Girl got back to Mars, it's not easy to talk about. But it's important that you know, that you understand. I look up, surprised. This isn't like her usual stories. Her face looks so serious that I'm almost afraid. Oh, okay, I say, sitting down. She stays standing, staring at the ground like the first time I saw her. Back on Mars, she begins. And then she stops to clear her throat. Back on Mars, the palace was in turmoil. Soon after the Martian Rose had left, the Royal Oracle had apparently consulted the Omens and revealed that their mission was doomed. The whole party would perish on Venus, she'd announced, to widespread dismay. Most of the courtiers wanted to wait and see if they would return, but Prince Xenobal moved quickly, declaring his father deceased and arranging his own coronation after a brief period of mourning. So when the Martian Rose reappeared, many in the palace rejoiced, but Xenobal was furious. He claimed it was a Venusian trick and ordered all on board arrested and thrown into the dungeons. Most of the guards refused, but Xenobal merely smiled and pulled a strange device from his robes. Very well, he said. If you cannot be trusted, you shall be replaced. And he flicked a switch on the small black box. From somewhere in the palace, an army of sleek gray robots poured into the corridors and halls, firing their short black guns into the air. The palace guards dropped their spears and fell to the floor, terrified. Within minutes, all resistance had ended, and Xenobal's robots were in complete control. So it was Xenobal, I say. Knew it all along. Wait and see, she says, frowning. As soon as they emerged from the Martian Rose, Steam Girl and her friends were surrounded by robots. The king and his daughter were led away under guard, while Steam Girl and her father were locked in a dungeon deep beneath the palace for several days. That's where they remained. Robotic guards came and went, stale food and water were pushed under the door. And then, late one night, Steam Girl woke to the sound of rattling keys and the glare of a lantern. A hooded figure stood at the door, silently motioning for them to follow. The mysterious figure led them through winding tunnels and narrow stairways, until finally they entered a small, cluttered room filled with books and scrolls and alchemical beakers and tubes. The Royal Oracle, said Steam Girl, as their rescuer stepped into the light. The Oracle put down the lantern and threw back her hood, revealing long blonde hair and strangely familiar features. To Steam Girl's great astonishment, her father gave an almighty shout and rushed forward to embrace the stranger. The oracle responded with a long, passionate kiss, until Steam Girl regained her wits and cried, What on earth is going on? Her father turned and smiled, his eyes filled with tears. My dear girl, this angel in red is none other than Dr. Serafina Starfire. 
your mother. Wait, what? I say, Steamgirl's mother? But didn't she die or something? What the hell is she doing on Mars? Please don't interrupt, she says slowly and quietly. This isn't easy. Sorry, I say, and I mean it. She looks like she's going to cry. The royal oracle, Steamgirl's mother, took a long look at her long-lost daughter and smiled. I'm so very proud, she said. How beautiful you've grown, courageous and clever, too. She really is just like you, father said. You should see the gadgets she comes up with. And so the three of them sat down and talked. Her mother explained how she'd been sucked through a freak, transdimensional wormhole to Mars fifteen years before, while trying to perfect the Martian Rose's experimental engines. At first, the Martians didn't know what to make of this strange lost creature, but her knowledge of science and astronomy soon gave her a reputation for magical powers of prophecy and divination, and so the king named her the Royal Oracle, and there she was. Steamgirl's father quickly outlined their own adventures since his wife's disappearance, and then talk turned to their present predicament. The prince and his robots will be looking for you by now, Steamgirl's mother said. If you stay here, you'll soon be found. Then we must take the fight to them, her father said with a wild look in his eyes. Rescue the king and his daughter, rouse the palace guard to rebellion, and overthrow that treasonous whelp and his tin-pot army of rattling contraptions once and for all. Steamgirl noticed a flicker of something dark in her mother's face at the mention of Princess Luzanna, but it quickly passed. Oh, my brave sweet husband, I have no doubt you will do all that and more. But first, we must prepare. We are three against many and they are very well armed. Luckily, I have a secret weapon of my own, and she stood and walked to a lushly embroidered tapestry covering one wall. She pulled the heavy cloth aside to reveal a simple wooden door. I have not been idle all these years since leaving Earth, she said. I continued my research on transdimensional space in the hope that I could create a new wormhole and find my way back to Earth. And then she opened the door. A weird yellow glow began to seep into the room. Follow me, she said, and led them through the doorway. As they stepped over the threshold, Steamgirl felt a curious chill and thought she might pass out. Then her head cleared and she saw they were in a square, windowless room filled with that same strange yellow glow. Six more doors, identical to the one they'd just come through, were spaced around the blank stone walls. A wooden staircase led to the floor above. Where are we? Steamgirl asked. A sweet fragrance in the air reminded her of something. This is my real laboratory, her mother said with a hint of pride, hidden hundreds of miles away on the far side of Mars. Each of these doors is like a small tear in the fabric of space-time itself. By stepping through, we are instantly transported to the other side of the wormhole, no matter how near or far that may be. Stars above, Steamgirl's father laughed. You have come a long way with your research, my darling. And where do they all lead? His wife walked to one of the doors and laid a hand against its smooth, dark wood. This one, she said, smiling, opens onto Earth. To Earth, Steamgirl's father cried. Home, then let's go there at once. We can warn the world of Prince Xenobol's imminent invasion, and then gather supplies and equipment before returning through your ingenious doorways to free Minimatic and Luzana and defeat the usurper's army forthwith. And with that, he strode resolutely to where his wife stood and threw the door open. To Earth, he called once more, and then he stepped through the doorway, disappearing with a flash of yellow light. Steamgirl's mother turned to her and smiled. Come along, then, 
she said, motioning toward the door, but Steam Girl hesitated. Something was wrong. I think I know where we are, she said, and it's not on Mars, her mother frowned. I don't know what you mean, she said. Sting Girl ignored her. I remember that smell in the air, she said. Giant blossoms and pools of nectar. We're on Venus, where Father and I first encountered the robot army. Her mother's mouth became a thin, sharp line. Everything makes sense, Sting Girl went on. You're the one behind it all, using those wormholes of yours to hop from Earth to Mars to Venus, and who knows where else gathering technology, weapons, and tools, and making your evil plans. That's enough, her mother said. And that's not all, Steam Girl said. You gave Xenable the idea of a trip to Venus, didn't you? You hoped we'd stumble across your robot army, and that would be the end of us. That's not true, her mother hissed. It was Xenable's idea to send you here. I never wanted you dead. But you used our absence from Mars to put your plans in motion announcing our demise so your puppet could seize the throne. Stingirl was angry now, angrier than she'd ever been before. But there's one more thing I want to know. Where have you sent my father? Her mother made a kind of growling noise. You think you're so smart, little girl, but you don't know anything. Everything I've ever done, every brilliant discovery, every unprecedented innovation, that arrogant, vain, mediocre fool claimed credit for them all. Who do you think designed the Martian Rose? Who built the Spirodynamic Multidimensional Concentrated Steam Engine? Certainly not your father, that's for sure. It was me, damn it. All of it was me. Steam Girl was taken aback. But that's not true, she said. Father's always said you were a brilliant scientist. He never claimed he did those things alone. And besides, even if he had, there's no reason to build a huge army and invade Earth. Don't be silly, her mother said. Ours is a world crippled by ignorance and superstition. Its technological and social development held back by a deluded nostalgia for outdated aesthetic and ethical philosophies. Always looking backward, never forward into the future. Through my transdimensional doors, young girl, I have seen other worlds, other Earths, and other realities, compared to those our Earth is a quaint little backwater. It's time we woke up and behaved like proper adults. You're even crazier than I thought, Steam Girl said. Now, answer my question. Where is my father? He's on Earth, Steam Girl's mother said, waving at the glowing doorway. Just as I said. But Steam Girl knew it was a trap. You're lying, she said, clenching her fists. Wherever you've sent him, you'd better bring him back now. Her mother sighed and clapped her hands. From the floor above there came sounds of movement, the heavy clink of robotic feet. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this, Stingirl's mother said. I really don't want to hurt you. After all, you are so clearly my daughter. Stingirl tried to think quickly, but her mind was still reeling from everything that had happened. She looked around, desperately trying to remember which of the identical wooden doors led back to Mars. Perhaps if she made it back to the palace, she could free the king and persuade the guards to help. But before she could do anything, her mother moved with surprising speed and power, grabbing her shoulders and pushing her firmly through the glowing open doorway. Stingirl stumbled, arms flailing, reaching for something, anything, to keep her from falling. And then she hit a wall of ice-cold light, and her mind went blank. In the silence that follows, I realize I'm shivering. After a while, I can't bear it anymore. So, Stingirl followed her father through the wormhole, I say, and ended up... where? She says nothing, just lowers her eyes, 
Are you okay? I ask. She doesn't look it. She looks away. Do you like this place? She says. Uh, you mean the school? The school, the town, the whole bloody world, all of it. I shrug. Well, it's okay, I guess, I say, and then I shake my head. Actually, it kind of sucks, at least what I've seen of it. I'm sure there are plenty of great places out there, but there's another long silence. Anyway, she says, making it sound like a closing door. Mrs. Hendricks is talking about our short story assignment. She writes a quotation up on the board from some writer I've never heard of. She makes us copy it down in our books. Some writers write to escape reality. Others write to understand it. But the best writers write in order to take possession of reality, and so transform it. I copy it down and think about what it means. I get the first part about escaping reality. That makes perfect sense. And I suppose it makes sense to try to understand the world, too. But the last part makes me uneasy. Taking possession of reality sounds like something Steamgirl's mother would say. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it. But then Mrs. Hendricks tells us to spend the rest of the period working on our stories, and for the first time in days I start writing again. I write a whole new chapter in the next half hour, where Rocket Boy leaves the princess with the heaving breasts and flies off to explore one of Saturn's moons. He finds an abandoned art gallery beside a frozen lake, with paintings hung on every wall. There's one picture he can't stop looking at, a strange portrait of an oddly dressed girl. A little chubby, kind of weird, but somehow very beautiful. Faded blue dress, scruffy leather jacket, long lace-up boots and black-rimmed glasses, and, of course, flying helmet and goggles. She shone like a bright, strange star, shining in those empty, lifeless halls, I write. Cheesy, I, I know, but that's how I feel. Anyway, in my story, the moment Rocket Boy reaches out and touches the painting of Steam Girl, she comes to life and appears beside him freed from the magical picture. She thanks Rocket Boy with a kiss. I managed to avoid the whole heaving breasts thing this time. And she explains how she was tricked into posing for a portrait by an evil artist magician who trapped her in the frame and kidnapped her father. Then they climb on board the Silver Arrow and fly off to rescue Professor Swift. But that will have to wait for Chapter 3. When the bell rings, I put away my story and walk to her desk, where she's curled over her notebook, working furiously. The next installment, I say, but she barely glances up. She closes the book and goes to put it in her bag. Oops. As he goes past, Michael Carmichael gives me a shove from behind, so I fall against her, and we both tumble to the floor. Laughter ripples through the room, and I feel my face turn red, but she just calmly climbs to her feet and turns to face Michael. You know the problem with you, Michael Carmichael, she says. You're reality incarnate. The whole class goes quiet. Michael makes a face. What does that even mean? If you imagine a dog, she goes on, it's always loyal and fluffy and cute. But in real life, dogs bite your hand and pee on the carpet and have sex with the sofa. That gets more laughs, but she keeps going. That's what you are, Michael Carmichael. Your dog pee on the carpet. In the silence that follows, Michael's mouth moves, but no sound comes out. Well, Mrs. Hendricks chews them both out. I pick up the notebook where it's fallen on the floor. It's open on the last page, which is filled with a single detailed drawing. What's this? I say once we're out in the hallway. She glances at the page I'm holding up. It's Steam Girl's last gadget, she says, not meeting my eyes. It's a gun, I say slowly. My throat feels dry. 
She looks at the floor, but says nothing. I thought Steam Girl hated guns. I thought she never used them. It is a gun, isn't it? I ask. It's the reality gun, she says quietly. What the hell is a reality gun? I say. It kills reality. And then she takes the notebook from my hand and puts it in her bag. After school, she's waiting at the gate. Just like that first time, she looks very alone as the crowd flows by. Kids point and laugh. We walk together to the first intersection. She seems tired. I have one more thing to tell you, she says. Okay, I say. You know how I told you Steam Girl and her father went through the door? She says. I nod. Well, it took them to Earth, she says, just like her mother told them it would. But it wasn't their Earth. It was a different world. A different universe. The wrong universe. This world was grayer, sadder. And the rules were different. Her gadgets didn't work the same. Technology wasn't magic anymore. Even people were different there. Less courageous, less beautiful and clever. And so they changed, too. She sounds sad, and I look to see if she's crying. Her face is pale, like chalk. Couldn't they go back, I say, back through the door? No, she says. Because after they went through, the door disappeared. It was a trap, you see. The whole thing had been a trap. Steam Girl's mother had planned it all along, to trick them into going through the wormhole to this totally different universe where they could no longer mess up her plans. She wanted them out of her life completely. So what happened next? That's it, she says. That's all there is. You mean that's the end of the story? I can't believe it. She says nothing. We wait at the lights till the red man turns green. Bye, she says and crosses the road. She's not in English on Friday. Michael's not there either. But Amanda is, and she smiles at me, a warm, genuine smile. When I hand in my story, Mrs. Hendricks seems impressed. Looks like you were quite inspired, she says. I was inspired, I say, by Steam Girl. Mrs. Hendricks looks confused. Of course she won't know about Steam Girl. I mean, the new girl. Wears a flying helmet and goggles? Oh, she says surprised. You mean Shania Swift? I didn't know you were friends. Um, kind of, I say. She's a little weird, but the thing is, she tells the most amazing stories. All about this really smart inventor called Steam Girl, who travels the universe in an airship having adventures with her father, and I realize I'm blushing and stop talking. Mrs. Hendricks frowns, flicking through my story. I had no idea, she says. She's always so quiet in class, and she hasn't handed in a single piece of work. Listen, Redmond, if you talk to her over the weekend, could you ask her to come and see me first thing on Monday? I'd really like to give her a chance to hand something in for this assignment, even if it's late. Sounds like it would be worth the wait. I will, I say. At lunchtime, I go to the incinerator, just in case. After five minutes, I'm getting ready to go when Michael Carmichael appears. Where is she? He says. Who? I say. Your freakish girlfriend, he says. Obviously. I pick up my bag and try to walk to the safety of the library, but Michael puts a hand on my chest to stop me. I want you to give her a message, he says, from me to her. Let me go, I say as clearly as I can. My voice is shaking. Tell her this from me, he says, his hand still on my shirt. For yesterday, 
and then he hits me in the face. I stay on my hands and knees till he's gone, watching blood trip from my face onto the dusty asphalt. Then I sit on the ground by the concrete wall with a wad of tissues pressed against the cut in my mouth. I can feel it swelling up. I should go to the nurse and get some ice, but I don't. When the bell rings, I get up and head for class. The bleeding has stopped, but my whole face is throbbing with pain. As I enter the science block, someone steps out of the shadows and grabs my arm. It's her, Shania. I've got something to show you, she says, guiding me out into the thin sunlight. She seems nervous, distracted. I finished it. It's ready. Why weren't you in English? I say. My voice is muffled. It hurts to talk. Mrs. Hendricks wants to see you. Never mind that, she says, reaching for her bag. I brought the... Then she sees my face and stops. Oh, she says. What happened? What do you think happened? I'm annoyed all of a sudden. I don't want to be, but I am. It's a message for you, from Michael Carmichael, for yesterday. She lifts a hand to her mouth. I'm so sorry. That's okay, I say, sounding more sarcastic than I mean to. Everyone thinks you're my girlfriend anyway. It's not the first time I've been pushed around because I hang out with you. She takes a step back, both hands held up, as if I might hit her. Her neck is turning red, but this time it doesn't make me feel good. I I'm sorry, I mutter, shaking my head. I, I, I just but she's already gone, half walking, half running across the asphalt, and I'm too tired and sore to go after her. Maybe I don't want to. I don't know what I want anymore. I just stand there, heavy and alone, until the next bell tells me I'm late for class. My head hurts. I take a deep breath and go back to school. The world feels cheap this afternoon. The sky is pale and empty. Colors are faded. Everything's dirty and ugly and falling apart. I sit in science class with my head on my desk. The teacher is talking about vacuums, which pretty sums up how I feel. After a while, I close my eyes and let my mind drift. I imagine I'm lying on a warm sand dune beside a girl, stroking her soft white neck. Not her this time, just a girl. An imaginary girl. By home time, I'm sleepy and numb. I head for the main gate staring at the ground in front of my feet, but there's something going on, a crowd in the way. Then I hear her voice and I start pushing my way to the front so I can see. Her face is red with tears in her eyes. Michael Carmichael looks angrier than ever before. At first I think he's wearing some kind of makeup, but then I realize he's bleeding from his lip and his t-shirt is torn at the neck. He steps forward and pushes her shoulder, sending her back against the circle of onlookers who spread out like a school of fish. You stupid fat freak, Michael says in a shaky voice. Stupid fat little bitch! He backhands her across the face, so hard she spins around, glasses flying, ending up on one knee, a few feet from me. The crowd almost moans. Michael is still advancing on her, without thinking I step forward and raise my hand. Leave her alone, I say. It comes out as a kind of squeak. Next thing I know, I'm on the ground, and Michael's looming over me, shouting something I can't hear. Behind him I can see Shania pulling something out of her bag, something awkward and heavy, metallic and long. Then she stands up, pointing it straight at him, holding tightly with both hands. It's a gun. Covered in her usual gears and rusting dials and stuff, but still unmistakably a gun. The reality gun. I can't tell if it's a toy gun underneath or the real thing, and from the look on his face neither can Michael. He freezes and then starts slowly backing away. 
Jesus Christ, what the hell is that? He tries to laugh, but the sound he makes is broken and small. No one speaks or moves for what seems like a really long time. Then she reaches up with one hand and pulls her goggles down over her eyes. They're shouting back near the administration block. Teachers are coming. And then she pulls the trigger. There's a bang and a flash and smoke and sparks. No, not smoke. Steam. The air is full of steam, like a thick, billowing cloud of warm, wet fog. Kids scream and people start running and someone knocks me flat. When I manage to get up again, the steam is slowly clearing and the crowd is scattered. Shania is gone. Her flying helmet goggles lie abandoned on the ground. The reality gun is there, too, still steaming, broken and split. Michael stands in the center of it all, hands at his side, mouth open, eyes wide. Are, are you okay? I say, moving closer. Michael turns and looks at me like he doesn't know who I am. Shit, he breathes out slowly. Then he shakes himself and looks down at his hands. Shit. He's fine. I grab Steam Girl's helmet and goggles and shove them in my bag. Then I run through the school gates and down the road before anyone can stop me. I run most of the way home. When I open the door, my hands are shaking so much I almost drop the keys. Inside, it's dark and quiet. I throw my bag into my room and hit the light switch, but nothing happens. I find Mom in the garden reading a book. There's been a power cut, she says. No computer or TV, I'm afraid. When? I mean, how long has it been out? About fifteen minutes, I guess. She closes her book and covers a yawn. Do you want me to get you a sandwich? I shake my head and run back out to the street. No lights are on anywhere. The air is eerily quiet. No cars driving past or planes flying overhead. No one's mowing the lawn or listening to music. Nothing. I start to run again along the empty road, listening to the buzzing in my head. I remember Amanda said something about Shania living in a trailer park. For all I know, it's just a rumor, but it's all I've got. I think there's something like that down by the estuary, so that's where I go. The sign outside says, Sunny Stream Trailer Park, but it's actually a wide dusty field with rows of shabby trailers and huts, rusting cars and sagging wires. At the entrance, I'm almost run over by a noisy old Ford. The driver gives me the finger as he drives away. I walk down the central path between trailers and caravans, all flaking paint and rusted metal. A little boy in green shorts stares at me, and an old man standing in his doorway raises his hand hello. Then, painted on the side of a painted pink trailer, I see the Martian Rose. It's tiny, not much bigger than an SUV. One wheel's been taking off, leaving it propped up on a pile of bricks and pieces of wood. All kinds of junk lie in the dirt outside. Broken appliances, bits of wrecked cars, scraps of tin, broken toys, rotting planks. A basic workbench leans against one wall, scattered with springs and broken cogs and half-assembled gadgets. As I stand there, wondering what to do, the door opens and out steps a skinny, unshaven man in dirty jeans and t-shirt. He looks at me with watery eyes. Uh, hello, I say. He says nothing. His hair is long and tangled and streaked with gray. He rubs his chin with a shaky hand. Is, um, your daughter here? I ask. He turns back to the trailer and calls out, Shania! There's no response, and after a moment he sits on an overturned beer crate and seems to forget I'm there. I walk up to the caravan and open the door. Inside, it's small and dark and smells like a garage. Shania? I say. A thin strip of light spreads out from the open door, and there she is, sitting in the corner, hugging her knees, 
Her glasses are cracked and she's taken off the leather jacket. Without the flying helmet, her hair hangs down across her shoulders. It's the color of polished brass. I sit next to her. Are you okay? She looks away. It didn't work, she says in a tiny voice. You know, the power's down, I say. Nothing's working all over town. Nothing electric. Nothing modern. Then I hesitate. No, wait. There, there was a car coming out of the driveway, so actually some things are working. I trail off, suddenly unsure of myself. She's watching me intently. I, I thought maybe the reality gun. I begin to feel pretty stupid. Then she reaches over and curls her hand around mine. Well, it scared the hell out of Michael Carmichael, I say. So that's something. I didn't mean to do that, she says. I just... He was... We sit there for a while, holding hands. She leans her head on my shoulder. Shania, I say. She rolls her eyes. Don't, she says. I hate that name. You know you're in pretty big trouble, I say. They'll have called the police. She takes a slow, ragged breath. What am I going to do? I think for a moment, and then I say, What would Steam Girl do? I'm not Steam Girl, she says. The air in the trailer is thick and warm. I feel lightheaded, like I imagine feeling drunk must feel. I reach into my pocket and pull out her flying helmet and goggles. Yes, you are, I say. You're clever and courageous and beautiful. If anyone can sort this mess out, it's you. She looks at me for a long, long time, then leans forward and kisses me lightly on the lips, lifts the helmet and slowly puts it on. There's a moment of perfect stillness, and then she stands up and smiles. Come on then, rocket boy, she says, and holds out her hand. One of my personal favorite stories so far on the show. Something about her just strikes a chord with me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's move on to the second story for today. It's called Blood Drunk by Adam Brown. Adam lives in Melbourne, Australia, and his story Neverland Blues appeared here on Far-Fetched Fables early on. His first novel was published by Coeur de Lyon in 2012 and is still available as a print-on-demand illustrated hardcover. His collection of short stories, Other Stories and Other Stories, was recently published by Satellite and will be available as an audiobook later this year. You can follow the links on the Triple F for more information. It's read by James Silverstein. James is a budding author and role-playing game designer with credits from the Seventh Sea and Stargate RPG lines. He's working on the upcoming Cairn RPG as well as a series of stories about a 1940s private eye in the City of the Undead. James feels that there are always more amazing stories that need to be told, and he writes, narrates, and runs games to share them with the world. He loves speculative fiction, noir detective tales, and pulp fantasy, and is honoured to be a returning reader in the District of Wonders. And so, here it is. The day I ask Josephine out is the same day the media first mentions the disease. Nothing much, just a curiosity piece in a couple of the papers. It gives us something to chat about on our first dates. I think the story is an urban myth, but she's not so sure. I press the point. Even on a biochemical level, it seems unlikely. 
Are we meant to believe in a disease, a virus, is it, a bacterium, that renders serum fats into glycerin, generates nitrates from the urea, then blends the two compounds in the correct ratio? Jesus. Writing it down here, I wonder how she suffered through those first dates. Things progress. Further deaths coinciding with the development of our romance. The accounts more credible, the nature of the disease coming clearer. The news pieces, though brief, have a more serious tone. The commentators who continue to doubt the reality of the disease, virally born as it turns out, start to sound shrill. Some claim the victims are suicide bombers, although they don't fit the profile. A Scottish minister of parliament, a house husband in Canada, a girls' school ice hockey team in Langler, Iceland. Then one morning I wake and I realize, just like that, that I believe. Josephine was right. I'd simply been afraid to face it before. I begin reading virology journals. The researchers who give the disease credence are a growing minority. There are debates about whether it's a bioweapon or not. It seems impossible that such a thing could evolve on its own. I read papers suggesting it's a rhinovirus, then others speculating it's like Ebola, transmitting itself in the aerosolized spray of blood and bone produced in the victim's final moment. Later, it turns out both models are correct. A new phrase comes into use, blood drunk, referring to the disease in its early stages. There's a report about a brave epidemiologist who isolated nitrous oxide from the blood of late-stage patients. The theory is that the drunkenness is a byproduct of the nitrogen reactions generated by the virus. But we've always been blood drunk, Josephine says over dinner one night. All this is nothing new, she says, a little drunk herself. She says she feels no different now to how she's felt her entire life. I remember she spent part of her childhood in Belfast during the Troubles. Her father died there. The diseased are called chimera, she says, like centaurs. It isn't until later that night that I realize what she means. Chimeras, yes, a blend of two things, but it's not human and horse. This time, it's human and bomb. Far more relevant to the current circumstance. What's odd is that it didn't happen sooner. The next morning we see a news article that indicates the virus is non-species specific. The bandied term is zoonosis, transmission between human and animals. There are reports from South America, an obscure seabird, Ulrog's gull, dying in sad little blood and feather bursts over the South Atlantic. Later that week, it's frogs. Shots on TV of entire colonies going up like Chinese New Year in the depths of a Queensland's rainforest. Cattle next. Certain breeds, herds of them hamburgering in nasty chain reaction cluster blasts. Meadows turn to cratered moonscape smelling of blood and barbecue. And suddenly it's serious. Agribusiness is losing money. Suddenly it's a big deal. There are committees, sanitation patrols... All far too late. Things are going downhill fast, steep end of the curve. More and more species succumb. Attempts to create a vaccine are unsuccessful or disastrous. The economy falters, not just here, but worldwide. Those countries not in a state of denial are in a state of emergency. Looting, rationing of food and water. It feels like the end of the world. Josephine moves in. My house is bigger, 
better security should that become an issue. I'm sick with dread, but Josephine is oddly cheerful, a kind of happy fatalism. She's more relaxed than I've ever seen her, despite suffering a miserable head cold. I begin to find her mood infectious. I relax into a feeling of luxurious resignation. When, soon after, I see my first actual example of the disease, it's in the garden, a flock of cabbage-moth butterflies disappearing in a wet-trickle cascade. It seems festive, pretty, childhood memories of cracker night. A few days later, we go upstairs to watch the sunset from my balcony. I've got Josephine's cold and should be feeling wretched, but feel elation instead. The sky is beautiful, the sort of sunset you get when there's a volcano somewhere spewing out ash. Birds wheel clamorously overhead, sparrows, swallows, and minos returning to their nests. I look at Josephine. She's swaying a little in her seat, as I realize am I. Have we been drinking? I take her hand. I tell her I love her. The words lost under a series of explosions from above. Charred feathers over the balcony. Another flock detonates in an elm nearby. Wet thunder, pyrotechnics backlighting the foliage. In the yard next door, a Labrador barks, frightened. Dogs are always afraid of fireworks until with a big, boomy bloodburst he's gone too. Things are speeding up, I say, and Josephine nods abstractedly. I see all the trees are burning, on my property and up and down the street, autumn colors bright among the branches. But Josephine's more interested in the lawn, which is alive with tiny flashes of blue light. Cicadas, I guess, popping merrily little deaths lighting the dark. The air itself is sparkling, mosquitoes flaring and pretty little glitter twinkles. Is it our blood that has infected them? A fruit bat is spinning by, spewing Catherine wheel flames, when we hear a big roar from down the street. A house has gone up. Then another. The smoke smelling like Sunday roasts. And then the street is awash with blood calligraphic rivulets, bright burning blue, and suddenly Josephine and I are naked to the bonfire night and laughing as we make sick, giddy love. Chimeras, fabulous monsters as all lovers are, the virus taking us closer and closer. <laughs> Ah, thanks, Adam. That was a fun one. A little creepy, but fun. And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it or sell it. If you like what we bring you, feel free to share it with friends and family or recommend it to total strangers on the street. If you have a friend who's having a birthday... Give them a hug from me, okay? I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy. Keep smiling and have a beverage for me. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 